and amen again. Well, this morning I have a word from the Lord. Who wants to hear it? A giant word? Go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. I have a word from the Lord from the Lord's word. James chapter 3, excuse me, James chapter 3. Please find James chapter 3. Uh, if, if you're on Facebook, you might have seen a picture of me with an elderly gentleman on an airplane that happened in April. That man just so happened to be a man named Dr. Dr. John MacArthur, one of my spiritual heroes, as you know, if you know me. And that discussion, as you can imagine, made me more excited than a little kid at Disneyland. And one of the many things that I was given the benefit of hearing was when I asked him, Dr. MacArthur, I preached through Colossians, Galatians, and I'm almost halfway through James. And he goes, boy, you're really moving, aren't you? And I thought, coming from him, yes, <laughs> I have moved, and that's somewhat intentional. As a church who had not historically had a verse-by-verse preacher in the way that I do it, I didn't want to drag it out too much and lose you. So I have taken paragraphs at a time, and done my best to explain them. But today, I'm going to take my hero's advice, and I'm going to slow down today. All we're going to do today is we're going to unpack a very weighty and sober verse. There are a few verses in the Bible that are what we'd call key texts. Texts that are applicable often, texts that leap out of the page, or texts that are very important to remember. James 3.1 is a text like that. Let me read it. James 3, verse 1. Our great God has said through his apostle James, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. One of the most gifted and influential preachers of the 20th century was an English pastor named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anybody ever heard of him? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Well, I know you have because you went to Shepherd's Conference. He's also just known as the doctor. The doctor. So if you ever hear me talk about the doctor, not a name coming after, I'm talking about Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is affectionately known as just the doctor because he left a very promising and prestigious career in medicine to become a herald of the truth, God's word. He began his ministry, his pastoral ministry, in a small country town. But then was later, after about 10 years or so, he was invited to become the preacher 
of one of the largest churches in London, a historical place called Westminster Chapel. It still stands to this day. There he stayed for almost 30 years, faithfully preaching and teaching God's word verse by verse, by verse to God's people. Later in life, after 30 years of preaching, when his health began to deteriorate, he began to edit and focus on writing. And one of his books that he's very well known for, personally one of my favorite books ever written, is called Preaching and Preachers. Not a very profound and catchy title, but that's what it's called. Preaching and Preachers, written in 1971. He gives the primary reason for writing this book in the opening pages of chapter 1. I want you to listen. Ultimately, he says, my reason for being very ready to give these lectures is that to me, the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. If you want something in addition to that, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. Now, as you're thinking about what I just read, you may quibble with the doctor's opinion about the preacher's work being the highest calling. We could discuss that later if you'd like. But one thing we all must agree on is this. The ministry of preaching and teaching is a very serious and influential task. Would you agree to that? And I think that was the doctor's main point. He goes on to say, Is it not clear, as you take a bird's eye view of church history, that decadent periods, meaning dwindling or drifting, periods of the church era has always been those periods when preaching had declined. What is it that has always heralded the dawn of a reformation or revival? It is renewed preaching. Not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great movements in church history. And of course, when the Reformation and the Revival come, it has always led to great and notable periods of the greatest preaching that the church has ever known. Unquote. If the one thing that can reform and revive the church is true preaching and the natural of the world, we can agree that it is the most serious task that a man can engage in because of its eternal effect on the hearers and the teacher. Which is what we're focused on this morning. Nor the work under the sun has an eternal effect on the souls of men. And that's why it's so serious. The ministry of teaching. Our main focus for today in James 3.1 is to uncover two reasons why the ministry of public teaching is a very weighty and serious task, and therefore should not be taken lightly and frivolously. If you understand what James is saying here, then you will develop a greater appreciation and godly fear for the work of preaching and teaching. 
That's the take-home for today. I want you to leave this room this morning with a greater appreciation and godly fear for the ministry of teaching and preaching. And I'm going to prove to you why you should view it that way. The first reason why the ministry of public teaching is a very weighty and serious task is, number one, because teachers should be low in quantity. Teachers should be low in quantity. Look at verse 1. He said, let not many of you become teachers. Let not many of you. So if this task is limited to a few, then it's a task that's not an entry-level position. In other words, it implies that not all who can teach and want to teach should teach. We collide with another imperative here, meaning that this is another action that believers are obligated to perform or else it's wrong. It's sin. That is to say that this is an apostolic command carrying with it divine binding authority on us all. And in the case, and in this case, rather, it has the potential of causing us, you and I, to be guilty of failing to refrain from doing something. So in most cases, we find in Scripture that it's a sin not to do something, right? Example, we read in Scripture, love the Lord your God. It's a sin not to do that. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a sin not to repent, right? Jesus said, follow me. That's a universal command, so it's a sin not to follow Jesus. There are dozens more in the Bible, and to not do them is wrong. But here in verse chapter 3, verse 1 of James, it's right to sit back and not perform the action which is to teach. It is good for most people not to teach and preach publicly because James says, let there be few. Now, let me be crystal clear right now. This verse does not mean to discourage anyone from becoming a true teacher, nor is it meant to discourage one-on-one discipleship in a Matthew 28 or Titus 2 sense. Jesus said to everybody, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. So James isn't saying, hey, don't do the Great Commission. The context here is talking about public teaching. We are all responsible to make disciples, to teach all that God has commanded. Or Titus 2, we've, I've read that several times. Men need, to be, men need to be men of sound faith and doctrine, and women need to be teaching other women to love their husbands, love their children, be workers at home and everything in that list. So there are, there is a sense in which all of us are teaching. But what James is talking about is the public teaching in the assembly. And I'll demonstrate that in a second. This verse is also uh, meant to warn the prospective teacher of the role's seriousness and the cost of getting it wrong. So don't walk away thinking, I'm not teaching to teach at all, or I should never pursue eldership. That's not the point. The point is to remind everyone that the role of teaching is serious, and there's a cost to getting it wrong. 
First Timothy 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, it is a noble work he desires to do. And one observation that is helpful is the only work that God calls noble in the Bible is the work of, of an overseer. So therefore, this warning should not scare men away from the office if they desire it. I want that to be clear. And now before we grapple with and dig deeper into what James is saying when he wrote, let not many of you become teachers, I want you to focus on those two words in the middle of verse 1 that's significant, my brethren. My brethren. This is a reminder to us who he's addressing in this statement. The spiritual family, right? The church, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's absolutely imperative to keep reminding you of this because you have to know who the audience is so you can interpret the text correctly. He is writing to the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, the called out ones. The church is not a building, and it certainly does not boil down to a select number of popes and cardinals. The church are those who are ecclesia, ek, out of, klesia, called out. The church is people who are called out of the world to represent Jesus Christ, our master. That's what the church is. And he's writing to the church. Those whom have been justified, declared righteous in God's standing, clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ. The people who have been saved out of spiritual darkness and been given spiritual life through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the implication here is that this does not apply to false Christians and certainly does not apply to unbelievers. This is important to keep in mind because I must continually preach that conformity to James' commands does not save. Having joy in trials, being a righteous talker, having external fruit of obedience, refraining from teaching, is no evidence in and of itself that one has the imputed righteousness of Christ. And James reminds us that those who have never been born again have absolutely no business teaching the word of God. So he says, my brethren, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Teachers. It's from the Greek word didaskalos, from which you get the English word doctrine. And it's derived uh, from uh, didaskalos, and it means to teach or to instruct. And I bring that out because if you read the King James Version, anybody have a King James Version in here? Anybody? Well, if you, if you go and read the King James Version, it, it, it says masters. Not many become masters. And, and, and that is sort of misleading because we don't think of teachers as masters, right? It's, the literal translation is teacher or instructor. It correlates with disciple, which is a learner or a pupil or student. There could be no teacher without learners, which suggests the fact that since there are to be teachers, there are always to be what? Learners in the church, right? 
The teachers were prominent in the life of the early church from the very beginning. They were roughly equivalent to the rabbi of the Jewish community. And that meant that the teacher in the early Jewish church, James' primary audience, remember, would have had considerable, considerable prestige. This was the case because the society at the time saw a relatively high degree of illiteracy, where people in lower classes had fewer opportunities to advance in status. Rome was no socialist country. It was no democratic country. And again, this is where the historical background and cultural background helps us understand the meaning a little bit better here. Because in America, where we are, it's unthinkable and just downright ludicrous to think that children don't deserve an education. That, that is a very Western American way of thinking. Who, what James is writing to, that, that wasn't expected. That wasn't the norm. So they relied heavily on their teachers to teach them spiritual truth. And as such, teachers appear in Scripture as having a special function and reviewed as interpreters of God's word. To them fell the duty of giving progressive instruction of God's redeeming covenant. And according to 2 Timothy 2.15, they were to do it with excellence and accuracy. The practice of having these teachers in the assembly of God's people carried on into the apostolic church, the post-apostolic church, into the patristic era. And then what happened? The traditions of men replaced it. And it wasn't really until the Reformation period where we saw a resurgence of the official teacher. What roughly took place sometime after the church fathers passed away was an emergence of unbiblical ecclesiology, which meant that the office of teacher was replaced by what? Priest. A position that's absolutely foreign in the New Testament. Absolutely foreign. We see that Paul ranked the gift of teaching very high on the list of spiritual gifts. He bestows to the church, to everyone. Unlike the prophet who transmitted uh, uh, revelations to the community, received from the Lord, the teacher had the task of expounding the truth. So So the prophet just spoke it, the teacher explains it. So that the Christian can grow. What we also see in Scripture is that the function of the teacher, according to Ephesians 4, was more than likely united with the pastor. Which is why you have pastor-teacher. The pastor was also the teacher, meaning that the primary way qualified men are to shepherd is through their teaching and preaching. He must be able to teach. He must be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That is a pastoral duty. So we understand then why James 
had to admonish believers about seeking too eagerly the role of teacher. When we understand the background of teacher, we see that it took skill, it took preparation, education, and according to James, it must involve extreme caution. One commentator speaking on why James was moved by the Spirit to give this warning. He said, quote, too many were seeking the status of teacher without necessary moral and intellectual qualifications. Unfit teachers were the major cause of bitter partisan spirit, chapter 3. Quarreling, unkind, and critical speech, James 4. That seemed to characterize the community. And perhaps you've seen this up, up close and personal. Perhaps you've seen the devastating, the devastating effects and consequences of unfit men and women teaching what they claim to be God's word. Men and women who brought unorthodox and unbiblical teaching because they did not consider the seriousness of the task. If you have, perhaps, never seen that, all you have to do is go on YouTube, watch TBN, and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. So we, we need to understand something. To stand up before a group of people, no matter how big or small, whether it's one person or 10,000 people. To impart biblical doctrine to them is the most serious activity that you could do, period. Why? Why make such a bold statement? Because nothing else that, there's nothing else you could do that would bring greater condemnation on yourself. That's the second reason why the ministry of public teaching is very weighty and serious. Because teachers should be high in quality. First, teachers should be low in quantity. Now, teachers should be high in quality. The few who teach, James says, will certainly be held to a much higher standard than the ones who do not teach. And so the higher... The standards, the greater the quality, right? He goes on and says, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. The tense of this participle, knowing, is significant. Because it, it tells us that it's a completed action with continuing results. In other words, don't forget it. You gain the knowledge, and you continually to keep it in mind. Don't forget this warning, James is saying. In the mind of the teacher, he must always approach the pulpit or lectern, knowing full well that he is under the microscope. Right now. The only way I could stand up here with confidence is because I worked hard to prepare this message. And I made sure that this is not Carl Heitman's opinion. And I know it's not my opinion because I studied the grammar. I studied the background, the culture. And I considered other men who were smarter than all of us 
that have put more time into studying this passage than you have I have spent listening to sermons your whole life. So, I can only stand up here and not pass out with fear because my confidence is in what the Word of God says, what it means, not what I think it means. That's necessary to remember that. I'm not giving a math lesson, a science lesson, a reading lesson, or a history lesson. I'm dealing with divine instruction that influences your soul. And therefore, I have a much higher standard. So does everyone who stands up before men and women and children. You know, some of the harshest words that Jesus spoke was a warning to his disciples, if anyone were to lead one of the little ones astray, it would be better to have a millstone wrapped around their neck thrown into the ocean. So what we teach our precious children matters too. If we get it wrong, James says, we will incur stricter judgment. Now I don't, like anybody, I don't find some sort of human joy in preaching this subject. I don't want to come across like I, Carl Heidman, am condemning you. But my conscience is bound to the conviction I've got to explain it. The Bible does talk about judgment. And you need to understand it. And it talks about strict judgment. Literally, this clause can be translated as such. We will receive mega judgment. You know, when we use the word mega, it's just a Greek word meaning greater. We will receive greater mega judgment. The Greek word rendered judgment in the noun form comes from crisis, from which we get the English word crisis. So you know two Greek words, and you didn't even know it. Mega and crisis. However, crisis, when you think of that, you probably think of a, just a really bad situation in general, right? We're in a crisis situation. Something really bad is happening, right? I mean, that's probably the general description you would, you would give, right, for that word? Well, listen to the English definition, and I want to show you how it's a little bit nuanced differently, but... You'll see how it's very similar as well to the Greek meaning. Merriam-Webster defines crisis as an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs in which decisive change is impending. Decisive change is impending. We're in a crisis. Something's got to happen, right? We've got to fix it. We've got to solve it. We've got to end it. So that means you're hopefully about to make a judgment. One of the the best things I learned in the military was to man up, have confidence, and make a decision in a crisis. Because when we're in combat, you're walking down the road, and you get blown up. You don't have time to say, time out. Let's consider all the options. You know, Let, Let's kind of analyze the different routes and get everybody's opinion. You have to respond. You have to make a decision. 
And when you're in a crisis, you have to make a judgment. So in the Bible, when the word crisis is used, it's spoken in reference to God's future decision of a person. And if we know the Bible at all, it's just another word of saying judgment. That God is going to make a decision about every single person who ever lived. In other words, he's going to make a judgment. And now when we make a decision, which is a judgment, it comes to us by way of using or applying a standard to even be able to make a sound judgment, right? Because how can we make a decision if we don't have any standard by which to justify our decision? I'm trying to think logically now, right? Okay. So if, we, if we're driving around, we find ourselves lost, in downtown Seattle, because there are too many one-way streets, and you just get frustrated, and you pull over, what do you do? So, oh, yeah, that too. I, I would pull up my iPhone. I would click on the app map. Map app, whatever. And then what comes up? You see that little blue dot, and it gives you some comfort. Whew. I know where I'm at now. And then you plug in home to the map app, and it tells you exactly where to go. Right? So, you're making a decision to go whatever way regarding which decision to go because you're using that map as a standard. So with God, he upholds his standard and uses that as a measuring rod by which to render a decision about us. And there is an impending judgment to come because we are all living in a crisis every day. It's called sin. We sin. Therefore, it creates the necessity for the just God of the universe to judge us. All of us. Jesus revealed that he had a dual purpose in coming to earth. One of them we all know well, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. But listen, that's only half the story. Jesus said in John 9, 39, for judgment I came to the world. For judgment I came to the world. So some will be saved. Jesus will save those whom he is seeking. But the truth is that some will also be condemned. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, reveals that a final judgment for all unbelievers will take place. The Apostle John wrote, Then I saw a great white throne, and, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Who is he talking about? The risen Lord Jesus. And I saw the dead, the great and small, stained before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Crisis. And the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. 
And the sea give up the dead which are in it. And death and Hades give up the dead which were in them. And they were crisis. Every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Second Corinthians 5 verse 10 reveals that a future crisis will happen for believers, a future judgment. For we all, Paul speaking to the Corinthian Christians, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. And so we see in Scripture that there is a universal judgment upon mankind that's imminent. But there is a group of people whose crisis will be much worse. The religious leaders. Mark 12. Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places at honor and banquets and they devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. Jesus says these will receive mega crisis, greater judgment. According to James, so will the teachers of the church who mishandle God's word. So what James is saying here is that teachers like myself will be scrutinized by the Lord more carefully than others because the ministry of teaching is unique and an invaluable stewardship. It's a stewardship. Sobering, isn't it? Is this a sobering verse? For us who teach, those who aspire to teach God's word? Many people hear and receive whatever doctrine the teacher presents, and he will be accountable for it. If a teacher preaches a false gospel, he is leading hearers to the gates of hell. A teacher teaches doctrines of demons. The hearers will be shortchanged, misled from experiencing the joys of being free in Christ and the blessings of functioning according to God's design. I think of some religions' mandate of forced celibacy. You look up that issue, and it's a doctrine of demons. Paul reflects the sense of sobriety as he addressed the elders of the church in Ephesus. He stressed that he would not receive harsher judgment, but rather he was very confident in his innocence. And by God's grace, as long as my teaching ministry lasts, I pray I could say this. Paul said, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. 
because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. It's not only do I love the truth, my conscience will not allow me to tell half the story. Yes, it's easy to preach all the light stuff. It's easy to preach the things that are easy to hear and be liked and be welcomed. And not to see people in the community walk the other way when they see you coming. But guess what? Second Timothy 2.15 says that I am working to be approved by my God. And I, and I have to teach the whole will. Because if I don't teach the whole will, then I cannot say with Paul that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Those who teach God's word regularly, we need to apply this. But it also has a greater application here. Because greater knowledge brings with it greater responsibility to teach God's word with absolute integrity. And listen, to bind the consciences of men to its meaning alone. We bind the conscience of men to the meaning of Scripture. That's why we have to be patient with each other and endure one another when we have other convictions that are not in the Scripture. But where the Scripture is clear... We're bound by it. Another commentator said, noting on this warning, he said, not only false teachers, but also those who ignorantly and curiously interpret the word of God in order to impress others are in greater danger to the church and are in danger to themselves. Many teachers in the church today are, proper, are, 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 um, are not properly grounded in Scripture and they're ill-equipped to teach it. Such teachers who misrepresent God's word can do more spiritual and moral damage to God's people than a hundred atheists or secularists attacking from the outside. That's why it is foolish and spiritually dangerous to have newly converted celebrities or any other new convert, as well as untrained and unaccountable preachers speaking and teaching. So, I just want to restate, though, James is not telling the people this to discourage people who are generally called. But he does want to impress upon them. He does want them to always remember and know the seriousness and wittiness of this task. And that they need to do it with sincere and leave any cavalier motivations behind. Now, real quick, how can you tell, now by application, how can you tell if a teacher or preacher is insincere or cavalier in his motivation? How would you know? Well, I think the answer to that question lies in discovering how God expects representatives of him to teach. There's a way to do it. To do it with quality so that you don't put yourself in judgment. At a minimum, we could find five distinguishing marks of a quality teaching ministry. Just real quick. I just, these are just off the top of my head from, from my preparation. 
The first mark could be a quality teaching ministry is comprehensive. Right? Tell the full story. Acts 20, 20 and 21. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance can't have one without the other. So teachers got to be comprehensive. They've got to tell the whole story. They've got to they explain the whole word of God, which is why I'm an expository preacher. We'll get to that. Secondly, another mark of quality teaching ministry is that he's expositional. Expositional meaning verse by verse. Don't skip the hard ones. <laughs> Nehemiah 8, we see as far back into the Jewish uh, tradition exposition was normal. Nehemiah 8.8 says they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they could understand. How about a third mark of a quality teaching ministry? Accuracy. Accuracy. 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, in our day, it may come across as prideful and I hate to say the word bigoted because we love that. Especially unbelievers love to say that. People say to say, this is what it means. There is one meaning. People like to respond, oh, you're very prideful. How do you know that's right? You know, that sounds like bigotry to me. So narrow minded. But we must be narrow minded when it comes to the, interpreting God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Paul would not tell Timothy to accurately handle the truth if it was an impossible task, would he? So we have to understand that though we need to be humble and be willing to be corrected because we're fallible human beings... The preacher has to get it right. He has to get it right. That's why he has to spend time and work hard in preparing to teach. He also must be faithful. Another mark of a good teaching ministry, a quality teaching ministry, faithfulness. 2 Timothy 4.2, he told, Paul told Timothy again, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You know what that means? That means... You do it all the time. You do it when people want to hear it. You do it when people don't want to hear it. You do it when it's not popular. You do it when it's popular. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness. And lastly, we can do a survey of Scripture and find another characteristic or mark of a quality teaching ministry, and that's that the teacher is authoritative. The teacher is teaching authoritatively. Why? Why should I stand up here with some authority and say, brothers and sisters, listen, learn, conform? Because I'm speaking God's word. I'm speaking on behalf of him. I'm representing him. Paul told Titus in Titus 2.15, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Reprove with all authority. 
So quality teaching ministry, comprehensive, accurate, faithful, expositional, authoritative. I'm sure there's more. But time does not permit us, and I can't say everything in one sermon. That's a good place to start, isn't it? That's what, that's what I want my teaching ministry to be. I can't find any other way in Scripture than to preach than that. I'm convinced of it. You know who else was convinced of it? A man named John Knox. John Knox was a Scottish reformer. And John Knox was so awed and burdened by the weightiness and seriousness of declaring God's word faithfully that before his first sermon, he wept uncontrollably. And because of that, he had to be escorted from the pulpit so that he could compose himself. My has the Christian church drifted. Has the church drifted from the biblical and that historical view of preaching? Today, you're more than likely to find a church where there is a false altar front and center. Or a man off to the side, sitting on a stool, just having a conversation with you. That's, that's ubiquitous. But we see in Scripture... Teaching, serious and weighty, because they're supposed to be low in quantity and high in quality. The apostles, the church fathers, the reformers, they understood that because they remembered James 3.1. And I pray that I will too, and I pray that you will too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given us such clear guidance. Thank you that you've spoken. You've God breathed, you've breathed out your will and your word. Oh, oh, Father, I pray that we will all humble ourselves and, and uh, conform to it more and more each day. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name.